London, New York, Barcelona. Today from Ireland, you can fly to almost any place. But what if you could fly to any time? If you could experience events that change the world, if you could meet the people who lived through history, would you do it? Welcome to a new series of Time Travels, the programme where we explore the past. Are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts. It could be a bumpy journey. OK, we made it. And I'm guessing we're pretty far from home. It looks like the year is 1922, and we're in Egypt. Oh, do you mind awfully if I sit down next to you? I'm absolutely spent after the journey. It's quite a long way from Bethnal Green, London, to Luxor in Egypt, I can tell you. I can't remember the last time I slept in a nice, comfortable bed. Looks like we'll be waiting a while, though. This place is just packed with journalists like me, all hot and tired. Not that I'd want to be anywhere else. No, not for all the gold in China. As soon as we heard the news in the office back home that the archaeologist Howard Carter had finally found the lost tomb of Tutankhamun, my editor knew he had to send someone out here ASAP. And by some incredible strike of luck, I got the job. I really thought Freddy would be asked, but as he had that terrible influenza recently, the boss decided he needed someone who was fit for the travel. And here I am. My mother is beside herself worrying, so I'm going to telegram her as soon as I can check in. She can't for the life of her understand why I would want to go so far away from home. But I have never been so excited in my life. Of course, it all comes down to Lord Carnarvon. He collects antiquities, all the old stuff, and he paid Howard Carter to try and find the mysterious lost tomb of the boy king. That's what they call Tutankhamun, because he was only 18 years old when he died. So anyway, Howard Carter had been excavating all over the Valley of the Kings, trying to find Tutankhamun's resting place for ages, but he had no luck, and Lord Carnarvon was getting fed up. Finally, he said to Carter, You have a year to find it. So the pressure was on, and it was by sheer chance that the mystery was solved. Apparently, it was the water boy who tripped over a stone that turned out to be steps, the way into a burial chamber. Now, you must remember that there was a chance the tomb might be empty because many people had raided these burial chambers over the years. But Howard Carter had to wait for Lord Carnarvon to get to Egypt before entering the tomb. Understandably, Carter was desperate to see what was inside, so he put a tiny hole in the doorway. They held up the light and he peered through. The others asked him, Can you see anything? And Carter just said, Yes, wonderful things. The room was full of gold and beautiful treasures. Can you imagine? 
took Lord Carnarvon two and a half weeks to get here. It must have been so hard for everyone to wait around. But when he finally arrived, they got to open the chamber door, and inside, none other than the mummy of Tutankhamun. What I wouldn't give to see it myself. Me and every single one of these journalists here just waiting to get home with that scoop of a story. Between you and me, though, there is some superstitious talk among the locals about bad luck befalling those entering the tomb. Something about a mummy's curse? <laughs> uh, I'm not too worried myself, but have your fingers crossed for me. I think we should find out a bit more about ancient Egypt. Ask an expert. So my name is Campbell Price and I'm the curator of Egypt and Sudan at the Manchester Museum, which is part of the University of Manchester. My job is to look after the 18,000 objects from ancient Egypt and Sudan we have in the museum to help people understand them, to communicate about them, to give access to school children or researchers or university students and uh, to make people aware of how important the collection is for understanding other cultures. What was life like for children in ancient Egypt? Life for children would be quite hard in ancient Egypt because most ancient Egyptian people were farmers. So as soon as you were able, when you were young, you would follow your parents into the fields, uh, ploughing, uh, reaping, sowing, um, doing all the things that farmers do. Uh, that's not a particularly easy existence, especially not in a country that's uh, as hot and sunny as Egypt. Uh, but if you were wealthier, if you were in the small, maybe 5% uh, of the, the richest in society, you could maybe learn to read and write, and you could maybe go into the service of the king in ancient Egypt. Who was the pharaoh? The pharaoh in ancient Egypt was the king. Uh, but to our modern understanding, he was a king with absolute power. So there wasn't um, a president or a prime minister, there was just the king. He might have some officials, some government officials to help him um, to, to, to take out the messages of whatever he decided. But the main job of the pharaoh was to give offerings to the gods and to make sure the gods were happy uh, and to defend Egypt um, uh, from attack. So he would be the one who would lead the army, uh, lead uh, prayers and rituals for the gods and build temples. So we know lots about the pharaohs because they left lots of records of the things they did and how great they were, uh, we know much less about ordinary people. How were the pyramids built? The pyramids were built with a lot of effort. Uh, there are some of them very big indeed, maybe almost the biggest pyramid is almost 500 feet tall. It was the largest building in the world for a long time. Uh, basically, we understand today that the pyramids were built um, using ramps, so uh, mud ramps which would be used uh, to get the stone onto 
higher levels and to gradually build the pyramid. Uh, the function of the pyramids, the reason the Egyptians built the pyramids, as far as we know, uh, is to be the tomb of the king. So when the king died, he would be placed inside a pyramid. Why did ancient Egyptians have mummies and how did they survive for so long? The richest people in ancient Egypt could afford a process called mummification. So after you die, uh, your body is dried out and wrapped up in linen bandages. That is because Egypt's a very hot country and bodies uh, decompose quite quickly. So after death, uh, although it's quite gory, uh, your internal organs were removed through a slit made in your side. Uh, so your liver, your lungs, your intestines and your stomach were removed. The heart was kept in place because you needed that for judgment in the afterlife. Your internal organs would be dried out and then put in four jars called canopic jars. Uh, your brain would be completely removed by introducing a metal uh, hook up your nose and then swizzling it about your brain uh, and then spooning out your brain matter and throwing it away. That's because the Egyptians understood uh, your thinking uh, and your emotion to be uh, centred on your heart, not your brain. So this process, the process of drying the whole body, was um, done using a chemical called natron, which is like a version of table salt. So it dries out the body quite quickly, and then your body would be wrapped up in linen fabric bandages uh, and then placed in a coffin. All of that only happened if you were rich because it's an extremely expensive process. So maybe only the top 5% of people would have that treatment. And the reason the ancient Egyptians made mummies at all was because they believed in the afterlife your spirit or a part of your spirit would need to have a home. And the best home for a spirit is a body. So rather than burning the body or... Uh, throwing it away in some way, uh, which is practiced by other cultures, the Egyptians believed you needed to preserve the body. So that's why we have mummies surviving to the modern day. The ancient Egyptians also believed the best way to get the attention of the gods, which in ancient Egypt could take the form of animals, was to give them a gift. And the gift should look like the god in question. So if you wanted to get in touch with the cat goddess, you might give the cat goddess a little statue of herself in the form of a cat or a cat-headed lady, or maybe better was to give her a mummified version uh, of her sacred species. So you found a cat and you, you had it mummified. Uh, I should say these are not pets. We tend to think of mummified animals as pets. For the most part, they're not. They're given as uh, gifts for the gods to get their attention. Something like in a modern church, maybe you'd light a candle, uh, a votive candle. So in ancient Egypt, these were votive mummies, ways of uh, attracting the attention of the gods. Is it true that there was a curse put on people who disturbed a mummy's tomb? It is true that there was a curse put on people who uh, disturbed uh, a tomb. Uh, we know this because there are hieroglyphic texts which spell out uh, curses. Uh, but it's not the modern movie idea of a mummy uh, physically coming to attack you. It's more the idea of uh, being judged by the gods in the afterlife. If you did something to damage someone's tomb or to uh, reuse maybe part of their... Uh, statuary or things which were meant for one particular dead person. There was a curse 
occasionally spelt out on the walls of the tomb, yes. People know the curse of Tutankhamun, but for the most part, uh, we think that's made up. It seems to be coincidence that people associated with the discovery of, tomb, of the tomb of Tutankhamun in 1922. Bad things happened to them. Uh, I know lots and lots and lots of Egyptologists who've found Egyptian tombs who've lived long and happy lives and have not suffered uh, the ill effects of the curse. What are hieroglyphs and why are people in the pictures always standing sideways? Hieroglyphs are the ancient Egyptian script, the most formal script. So it's the writing that's used on tomb walls, on temple walls, on really official documents. But everyday writing between people in letters or in uh, contracts or everyday writing was, was, was much more uh, squiggly, like everyday handwriting today. The reason the script is made of, of, of pictures, what we think of as pictures, with animals and people and why they're always facing sideways, is to make them easy to identify. So they're not like a, an impressionistic painting, like a 19th century European artist. Uh, they are representative of a, a person, and the person has two legs and two arms, and they have to be shown in that way. So they appear to us very stiff, very static. They look quite unnatural. How come there are so many things from ancient Egypt in museums all over the world? The reason Manchester Museum has so many artefacts from ancient Egypt and why uh, European and American museums have a lot of ancient Egyptian things is because uh, tourists and travellers and collectors went to Egypt um, for the last couple of centuries and they were buying objects, uh, in some cases stealing objects, um, but then between around 1880 and 1980, the Egyptian government allowed uh, archaeologists who were digging in Egypt to keep part of what they found. So here in Manchester, um, we had a, a very rich uh, sponsor, a benefactor uh, called uh, Jesse Howarth, and he gave money to archaeologists working in Egypt, a lot of money. And so when they were allowed to bring objects back out of Egypt for several years, all of what they found was being given to Jesse Howarth. So that's why we have a big collection uh, here. So other museums in Paris or London or Dublin tended to support archaeologists in the same way. Uh, since the 1980s, it's been illegal to take anything out of Egypt. So that um, process uh, of, of exporting objects does not happen anymore. Did you know that the bandages of an ancient Egyptian mummy if unwrapped, could stretch for 1.6 kilometres. Weird, but true. Here at the Manchester Museum, there are many Egyptian treasures, including ancient mummies. Dr Campbell Price is going to tell us more. Here we are in the Manchester uh, Museum. We're in a special room called the Organic Store. So that noise we can hear in the background is the sound basically of air conditioning. Uh, and that has to be running constantly, so we can't turn it off even for TV or radio interviews. And that controls the, um, the humidity in the air and the temperature. The Manchester Museum has uh, 20 complete human mummies and 50 animal mummies. So the Egyptians were not just mummifying people, they were mummifying animals. The people tend to be quite rich. So here 
in this case the mummy of a, a child, maybe only five or six years old, their parents must have been quite wealthy because the child probably wouldn't have generated the wealth themselves. But uh, especially where mummies are covered in gold or in beautifully painted coffins, wood, wood in ancient Egypt was scarce. There weren't many trees. Um, so if you were well-to-do in society, if you were rich, uh, you could afford to have a nice piece of wood maybe imported uh, and painted. And so Manchester University, where we're based here at Manchester Museum, uh, has led in the study of mummies uh, for over 100 years. So back in 1908, a lady called Margaret Murray uh, conducted the first scientific unwrapping of a mummy in the UK. And then in the 1970s, that continued with my predecessor, Professor Rosalie David. She wrote a lot of books about the subject. She also unwrapped some mummies. Uh, but nowadays, in the last seven years since I've worked at the museum, we take the mummies over to the hospital, the children's hospital, and we put them in a CT scanner. So that means that they are examined, you can see under the bandages, but you don't do any damage to the mummy itself. So here in the, the storerooms, we've got objects not just from tombs and temples, but also from everyday towns, uh, the places people uh, lived. Uh, one particular town uh, we have uh, objects from uh, is called Cahoon. Now, Cahoon was occupied around about 1800, 1850 BC, so almost 4,000 years ago, and it was uh, intended to house the people who built one of the pyramids. So it's a pyramid builder's town, and at the town were found not just uh, people's uh, jewellery and uh, boxes and things of everyday life, there were also tools. So this um, wooden mallet I'm holding, uh, as you can see, is very nicely worn. It's got a lovely shine on the handle to show where it was uh, held. And this would be used with a metal chisel uh, to, to work stone. So this comes from the site of the pyramid. So presumably this was used by a workman uh, almost 4,000 years ago. And what I love about it is it looks like it was dropped yesterday and you, it's still quite heavy. You could still use it uh, to actually carve something potentially. Uh, it's a really nice connection to the people who lived in ancient Egypt. People often ask me about the ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead. Uh, and this is a very important text, a document that the Egyptians took into their tombs. And we have an example of a page of it here. Um, it's written in uh, ancient Egyptian writing, uh, what we call hieroglyphs, uh, which is a script based on pictures of things. And so here the hieroglyphs uh, say that this is one of many hundreds of spells, magical spells, and it says it's a spell for transforming into a crocodile. And so this is something you get in the Egyptian Book of the Dead in order to successfully pass into the afterlife after you die, you need to potentially transform into different animals. So you need the magical words to be able to do this. And the Book of the Dead is like a combination between a guidebook to what's in the afterlife, but also a passport, something that's going to allow you entry into this, uh, this space beyond life. And as long as you've got your guidebook and passport with you, sometimes physically wrapped into the mummy's bandages, then that means you can magically pass through uh, successfully. Today, it would take quite some time to get from Ireland to Egypt, 
but a couple of hundred years ago it would take even longer. And in the early 19th century, not many people would have been brave enough to try. But Lady Harriet Cavanagh was not your average person. Lady Harriet Cavanagh was born on the 13th of October in 1799. She married Thomas Cavanagh, an MP, and they lived in Boris House in Kilkenny. They had four children, Charles, Thomas, Arthur and Harriet. Lady Harriet was a very loving mother to her children. Her son Arthur had been born without arms or legs. And so Harriet spent a lot of time helping him to live as full a life as his brothers and sister. Although many people thought that the child would never be able for much, Harriet was determined to give him every opportunity. With help from a local doctor, she had a mechanical wheelchair built for Arthur, which he could steer himself. Lady Harriet helped him to learn to write and paint by holding a pen and a brush between his teeth, and in time he even managed to become an accomplished horse rider, using a special saddle. He also enjoyed outdoor activities, such as fishing and hunting. In 1846, after her husband had died, Lady Harriet decided it was high time for a little adventure. So along with her three youngest children, she packed up and set off. The tutor also came along to make sure that the children didn't miss out on their studies while they were away. Lady Harriet was an antiquarian, which meant that she was fascinated by ancient things. So there were many places in the world that she was keen to visit. However, it was not considered safe or proper for a woman to travel to far off lands, especially with her children in tow. But Lady Harriet was not put off by other people's opinions. Starting in France, she and her family travelled to Egypt, where they visited ruins and archaeological sites along the River Nile. From there, they travelled on to many exciting destinations, including Hebron, Jerusalem, Petra, Beirut and Constantinople. Travelling across the desert is not easy at the best of times. Lady Harriet and her children often travelled by camel, and one of those journeys took 36 hours, which must have been very hot and uncomfortable, not to mention dangerous. They also travelled along the River Nile in a traditional wooden sailing boat called a felucca. Lady Harriet sketched and painted many of the wonderful sights she saw along the way and sent the pictures home to her family and friends in Ireland. When it was finally time to return, Lady Harriet brought home many historical artefacts which she had collected along the way. But that was not all she brought. She had also picked up a new skill. On the way back she visited Corfu, where she had been very impressed by the wonderful Greek lace that the locals had produced. So she brought some samples back to Kilkenny with her. Her tenants soon learned how to copy these designs and lace making became a local business. Today, Lady Harriet's diaries, sketches and paintings of her travels are very useful for historians. She was one of the few Egyptologists from Ireland and many of the treasures that she collected are now on display in the National Museum. Lady Harriet Kavanagh is remembered today as a remarkable person who achieved many things that were unthinkable for a woman of her time.
home sweet home, and the airport is just as busy as ever. And like I said, you can fly to almost anywhere or any time. So, where do you want to go next? This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.